I feel like we're at the end of a hike together. For the last 11 weeks or so, we have taken our time slowly to climb up the mountain of God's mercy. I pray that for you that that journey has been a good one and that the views you've enjoyed over these 11 weeks have been for you breathtaking and spellbinding and wondrous as we've considered all that God accomplished for us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we say like we did, those of you who grew up in church, Jesus died for our sins, but we say that hopefully with an understanding of the fullness of what that means. That when we say He died for us, that meant He dealt with the wrath of God and the filth of our sin and the debt that we owed and our sin and our shackles and slavery and last week even considering that He adopted us as His children. So what we're doing over these last two weeks as we bring this series to a close is sort of making our descent from this great mountain. And the way up is always longer than the way down. So in these next two weeks, we're sort of going to look back and consider if all of that is true, how do we respond? If everything we saw at that mountain was true, what do we do in response? And every week, of course, we're going to keep coming back to Calvary and keep coming back to the cross. But in these two weeks, we want to especially ask, what does that mean for us? What's required of us? If we are forgiven people, what do we do in response? And I think it would be a fair summary to say, if everything we've said for 11 weeks is true, all of you who have trusted in Christ are forgiven. And now what we want to ask is, what is required of forgiven people? Now, there's literally thousands of ways to answer that question. You're going to spend the rest of your lives unpacking how do you live in response to Christ crucified. But here, one of many answers that the Apostle Paul gives in Ephesians 4, 31 to 5, verse 2. I'll read it for you. You can just hear it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'll read you one sentence from those verses again. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If it's fair to say in summary of these 11 weeks, we are a forgiven people, then the Apostle Paul says one of the responses is that we ought to forgive one another as in Christ God forgave us. That Paul's going to say forgiven people must be forgiving people. If we've talked for 11 weeks on the forgiveness of God through Christ, we want to respond, and one of those ways is that forgiven people must be forgiving people. What we want to do today is consider again our forgiveness through Christ crucified and the demand, the response it demands, namely that we forgive one another. To do that, we could stay in Paul's language in Ephesians, but I want us to consider for today a story Jesus told in Matthew 18. It's the story Princey read for us. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're on page 823. Matthew 18, we're looking especially at verses 21 to 35. 
And what we're going to see together is that forgiven people must be forgiving people. A forgiven community must be a forgiving community. I'm going to pray as you turn there, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll consider this story together. Our Father, we come to you and we give you thanks that we have an opportunity to open your word and study your scripture. We pray that as we do it, this text is clear. And we pray that it, it's not so much help us to understand, though we need that, but help us to live what this text clearly teaches. We need your Holy Spirit to come and transform our hearts to be the kind of people and be the kind of community your word is calling us to be. I pray that you would overcome every proud heart, every resistant mind, and that you would win us even today through your gospel. I pray that your mercy might motivate us to mercy. Your grace might motivate us to be gracious, and your forgiveness might motivate us and move us to be forgiving. Change our lives even today. Change the course of the direction of our lives even today. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in verses 21 to 35. Before we dive into that, I want to just set you up with the context of Matthew 18. In, in the passage right before the one we're looking at, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples where he's basically telling them how they're to relate to a brother that sins against them. So he gives them these set of instructions on what they're to do if, a, if you have a brother who sins against you, a Christian, someone you love who's sinned against you. And he walks them through some steps. He says you're to approach them privately and seek their confession and their repentance so that you could be restored. But if that doesn't work, you get two or three people and you go and approach them together. And if they're still living in their sin, you bring it before the church. And together the church pleads with them to repent, to confess, to come back to Christ. If that still doesn't work, there's the process of even treating them as an unbeliever. And of course, Jesus treated all unbelievers with great mercy and compassion, but he's saying don't let them think that they're in when they're not. And so there's a lot in that text we could explain, but generally what I want you to hear is Jesus has just finished talking to his disciples about how they're to treat a brother who sinned against them. And namely, how they're to go about the process of forgiving them, restoring them, pursuing reconciliation with them. And after hearing that, Peter has a question, and he has a statement to make. So Peter always has a statement to make, right? So verse 21, this is what he says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So here's Peter's question. If we're talking about forgiving our brother and we're talking about the steps we need to take to pursue reconciliation, Jesus, how many times am I going to have to do that? Right? If, if I'm going to pursue this, how often am I going to do that? How, how many times a day am I going to take these steps? And then he proposes a number. He says, how about seven? Seven's a good number. How about, how about that many times a day? Now, that number is not as random as we might think. There was a rabbinic Jewish law at the day that said three times you forgive, and if it's the fourth time, you're no longer obligated. Because the idea was if someone repents to you three times, if they do it a fourth time, they're not really repenting. You're not required to forgive. And so Peter's logic was, look, everything's a little bit more complicated with Jesus. Nothing's the way it seems. Everything's much bigger than what you think. So how about more than doubling the requirement? How about seven? How many times am I going to have to forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus responds, 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, 
but 70 times 7. Jesus hears 7 and he says, far from it, 70 times 7. Now there's debate among scholars as to what number this really is. Is this 70 times 7, like 490, or is this 77, as some translations say? Which is it? And they sort of go back and forth and they lob back and forth and volley together about, is it 77 or 490? But by the time you've gotten into that debate about counting numbers, you've realized you missed the point. The point is, whether it's 77 or whether it's 490, that's a lot of forgiving to do in one day to one brother. So Jesus is exploding the law to say this isn't going to be about counting. This isn't going to be getting to 66 and really hoping they screw up one more time so you can go, that's it, no more, right? I don't have to forgive you. You reached your quota or your limit. You don't get to 489 and hope for one more. No, Jesus is saying this is not going to be a matter of the law. This is not going to be about obeying a rule. He's going to explode the law to make this about your heart. Basically, what he's going to say is forgiveness is going to be unending, unlimited, even as your father forgives in unending and unlimited ways. It's interesting, this number 7 and 77. In Genesis 4, you have this story of a man named Lamech. He's a descendant of Cain. And if you know the story, Cain was the first murderer on the earth who murdered his brother. Well, his descendant, Lamech, is even better than Cain. So Lamech has this boast in Genesis 4, somebody bumped into me and I bumped him off. He, he basically kills the people who give him a hard time. And then he boasts, if Cain is avenged seven times, I will be avenged 77 times. And so you wonder if Jesus, who knows the scriptures well, is telling his disciples and his community, you are to be as committed to pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation as dumb Lamech was committed to pursuing vengeance and violence. That, that the way of life for this community is going to be unending, unlimited forgiveness. Jesus isn't establishing a new rule or a new law. He's basically exploding the law so that this becomes a matter of the heart. Are you going to forgive your brother from your heart? And in fact, by the time we get to the end of the passage in 35, those are going to be his last words. You are required to do this from your heart. That forgiven people will be, must be, forgiving people. Because all of us, if we're honest, could forgive to check off a rule. So if the rule was three or the rule was seven, we could do that. We could say, I forgive you to check off a rule and yet not do it from the heart. And Jesus has now exploded the law and the rule so that this becomes a matter of your heart. And any time you move from rule to heart or law to heart or religion to heart, now you're in the realm of the gospel. And so you're going to need the gospel to be a forgiving people. And so Jesus expounds on that, unpacks that by telling a story. Jesus is going to walk us down the path of forgiveness. So verse 23, here's how the story begins. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
The first step in the path to forgiveness is that forgiveness requires dealing with the debtor. Forgiveness requires dealing with the debtor. So in this story, you've got this great king who has these servants or officials under him, and one day he brings them to give an account, to, to give an account of what they owe. And so he brings before him a man who owes him 10,000 talents, and, and we'll come to what number that is. But, but one of the things he does is he brings this man and forces him to give an account for his debts. If you're going to walk down the path of forgiveness, one of the first simple but often overlooked things is you're going to have to deal with those who have debts to you, who have wronged you, who have hurt you. For some of you, there is nothing more frightening than confrontation. So for you, nothing would terrify you more than to confront someone, to approach someone, to actually bring up the difficult, awkward, hard conversation of saying, this is how you've hurt me. This is how you've wronged me. For some of us, our method of conflict is to avoid it at all costs. Right? We would much rather avoid a fight than win one. We would rather keep the peace even if there is no real peace. For us, the best way to deal with conflict and hurt is to sweep it all under the rug. And, and, and you know the problem is that that never works. Because all that means is that you keep sweeping stuff under the rug until you've got this big pile in the living room that you keep tripping over every time. And every time you do, it only makes you more angry and more bitter. For, for many of us, right beneath the surface of our heart is a great deal of unresolved hurt, unresolved anger, unresolved pain, and we keep piling that stuff until it settles and smolders and becomes good, ripe bitterness. If you, if you begin to peel away at the layers of your heart, how many of us have great bits of bitterness? And, and someone once said, holding on to bitterness is like holding acid in your hand, hoping to throw it in someone's face. Your hope is to hurt the person who hurt you, but in holding on to it, you're destroying yourself. You're ruining yourself as you seek to pour out your bitterness somewhere else. I came across a number of questions to ask your heart as you think through if you're holding and nursing bitterness. Just hear them. Do you continually replay in your mind with great detail a negative past event and dislike for the persons involved? So you've got that event and you play it and you rewind it and you hit it on pause and you watch it slowly, all the details about that person who hurt you. Do you find yourself continually referring to someone in a negative way because of some past hurt? Do you intentionally avoid certain people because you find yourself becoming continually annoyed and angry in their presence? Do you find that your dislike of someone is growing over time? So we've got the proverb, time heals all wounds, and yet you know deep in your heart the passing of time seems to only grow your dislike for a person. If you've got bitterness in your heart, I want to sympathize with you and say bitterness is caused because of someone's sin against us. But I do not want to validate it or justify it. 
Because while bitterness is caused because someone sinned against us, what bitterness reveals is that we've got junk in our own heart. Amy Carmichael, this missionary to India for some 45 years, she, she wrote this, For a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. So what she's saying is if you've got a cup that's filled with sweet water, no matter how suddenly or strongly you jolt it, you're not going to have bitter water spill out. What's in the cup will spill out no matter how suddenly or strongly it's jolted. And so if you've got bitterness in your heart, then you know Jesus is right when he said it's from the heart that all our wicked and all our sin comes out. If bitterness is what's spilled out, that's because our hearts have just as much junk in them as those who have wronged us. And so rather than avoiding conflict at all costs, we ought to deal with our debtors. Not so we can nitpick every person who's ever done anything, but in, in obedience to what Jesus says. In fact, I want you to hear Jesus' commands that we be a people who deal with sin and sinners, who deal with debts and debtors. Matthew 18, 15, the verse is right before ours. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. So if forgiving your brother is a command that we're ready to rally around, then so is Jesus' first command, which is, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. You can't sidestep one to get to the other. Or Luke 17, verse 3, If your brother sins... Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Before you can get to forgiving him, Jesus is saying, you've got to deal with your debtors. You've got to bring this stuff out. And when you don't, please don't believe the lie, as I often have, that you're somehow holier for not bringing it up, because you've really forgiven. Because what you've done in reality is shown that, one, you don't really love that person. Because love does not let someone stay in their sin. And if someone has sinned, the loving thing would be to plead with them so that they might also walk out of their sin. But it also reveals that you are a coward. And there's a great number of reasons why we don't have the conversations we feel God is calling us to have. And maybe in your soul care groups or in communities, you can talk through, why am I so scared about this? Why can I never bring this out? And the gospel have much to address even your fears, even your issues of wanting men's approval and longing for acceptance and fearing that you might not be accepted as you were. The gospel will have much to say to us. But if we're going to walk down the path of forgiveness, it starts here. We deal with our debtors. That will often mean having those difficult and uncomfortable conversations and yet doing so in great love, being a community that is committed to speaking the truth in love, even to one another. All right, if you're going to keep walking in the story with me, now we're at verse 26. Forgiveness requires us to deal with our debtors. Here's how the story continues. Here's how the path continues. 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him... The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
So here's what's happened. The king has called this man to give an account. It's found out that he owes 10,000 talents. The king orders that he's got to be punished to repay his debts. And this man literally falls on his knees and implores and pleads and begs with the king and says, have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything I owe. And then you read the most impossible thing, which is that this king doesn't just answer what the man has requested. He doesn't just give him time. He's not just patient with him so that he could work back his debt. He forgives the debt. Completely gone. And so the second step in this path towards forgiveness is that forgiveness requires bearing the cost. Forgiveness requires bearing the cost. Anyone who tells you just forgive, just forget about it and let it go, has no idea what they're talking about. Because forgiveness is always a costly endeavor. If this king is going to let this man go, it means he now eats the cost of 10,000 talents. He's never going to get that again. He's going to let it go. He's going to bear the cost. It's free for the guy, but it costs him. And so forgiveness is always free, but it's never cheap. Forgiveness is always free, but it always comes at a cost. Forgiveness is given freely. In the book in the back, we're giving away for free the, the 50 reasons why Jesus died. Piper writes, that's why you have the word give in forgiveness, so that you're reminded you're giving when you forgive. You're, you're not getting. You're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting what you're owed. You're giving away the right to get even. You're giving away the right to retaliate. You're giving away the right to vengeance and retribution. You give it away. And so forgiveness is free and gracious, but it's costly. It's going to come at a great cost. It did for God. We can talk all day about how we are freely forgiven in Christ. You have nothing to do, nothing to work for, nothing to earn God's forgiveness. It came free, but it didn't come cheap. It didn't come without cost. Because while forgiveness for us is free, it cost us nothing, it cost Jesus everything. For 11 weeks, we've been talking about the cost of forgiveness for Jesus Christ. That in order to forgive, God didn't just wink or pass it away or let it go. God dealt with our sin at great cost to himself. And the only thing is, rather than making you pay, he paid for you. Forgiveness is always going to be costly and even so for us. It'll cost you to be forgiving people. It'll cost you the risk and the embarrassment of actually having to have that hard conversation and what the person might say in return. It'll cost you also the hurt of saying, you owe me 10,000 talents and yet I forgive every debt. It'll cost you to not only suffer the hurt they did to you once, but to continue to suffer as you watch them not being inflicted with what you want to inflict on them. And please understand, this doesn't mean we're not for justice. We are. Sin has consequences and we are fine with them. Throughout the scriptures, you, you see people who have consequences for their sin. So imprisonment, punishment, all of those things. Yet what it is saying is from your heart, you are going to forgive even as God in Christ forgave you. That you're going to bear the cost of the debt. 
You're going to absorb it. You're not going to seek to have it repaid. And that somehow you're praying for blessing on those who've cursed you. You're seeking prosperity for those who have hurt you. You're longing to love and see people redeemed who have sinned against you. And so if some of us sweep our pain under the rug, others of us will not bear the cost. And so we frame it on the wall. We frame our hurts on the living room wall so we can be reminded of it with every passing by. We carry it with us in our wallets so that somehow this morbid thing becomes a source of comfort for us because it is very costly to forgive. And yet Jesus is saying forgiven people will be forgiving people. Forgiven people must be forgiving people. And so your question has to be how? How do you do that? How do you forgive? How can you possibly love enemies and bless those who curse you and, and, and pray for those who persecute you? How does that happen? One more step down the path of forgiveness. Look now at verses 28 to 35. Forgiveness requires us to deal with our debtor. Forgiveness requires us to bear the cost. One more. 28. But when that same servant went out, the one who was forgiven 10,000 talents, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Does that remind us of something? I mean, that's literally the same exact scene, just one second later. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The third step down the path of forgiveness is that forgiveness requires remembering that you were forgiven a much greater debt. How could you possibly do this? Forgiveness requires remembering that you were forgiven a much greater debt. As the story continues, you've got this man who's been forgiven 10,000 talents. We'll come back to that in a second. He walks out of the king's palace. He finds a fellow servant on the same ground as him, relating to the king as their superior. This guy owes him 100 denarii. And so surely this guy forgives that debt. I mean, surely he remembers the mercy that was just extended to him and extends that mercy back. Surely he hears the guy say the very sentence he said 10 seconds ago and says, I forgive you even as I have been forgiven. Surely not. Surely not. Because this guy chokes him and says, pay me what you owe. And if you're going to get how insane this is, you've got to just get for a second how much they owed. The first servant owed his king 10,000 talents. The second one owed him 100 denarii. In that day, one talent 
was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So the first one, in owing his king 10,000 talents, owes his king 60 million denarii. A number so high that literally Jesus would have expected everybody to just gasp. I mean, you didn't even think that high. 60 million denarii so that when the second guy comes, he owes him 100. A, a, a worker, a laborer in that day was paid one denarius a day. That's his wage. And so for the first guy to pay back the king, just like he promised, I'll give you back everything I, you, I owe you, it would have meant he needed to work for 60 million days. That works out to roughly 193,000 years. The second guy owed 100 denarii. That works out to about four months. And so Jesus is saying, this first guy is forgiven 60 million, and he chokes the guy who owes him 100. This first guy is let off the hook for 193,000 years worth of work, and he sends to prison the guy who has to work for four months. And the story continues with Jesus saying, the king hears of this and says, if that's the measure you want to use, that's the measure that will be used back towards you. If I showed you mercy, how could you not show mercy? I, I don't know about you, but I read this story and part of me honestly feels like I would never do that. Like I would walk out and I just would not do that. If I literally had been forgiven 60 million and somebody owed me 100, I, I just wouldn't do that. And yet Jesus is saying, you do it all the time. Because every time you will not forgive, you are like this man. Every time you nurse that grudge, you are like the guy who's been forgiven an enormous debt, an impossible debt, a never ever can pay back debt, and you choke the man who owes you a hundred. Because every time you nurse that bitterness, you're like the one who could never repay this enormous debt and had let it go, just forgiven, completely freed. And yet you hold against the one who owes you. Jesus says, your sin against your king is infinitely greater than any sin ever committed against you. Hear that, because I know what I just said. Because I know some of you have been hurt deeply and wounded very badly. And yet, what Jesus is saying is, everything that could come your way is infinitely less than what you have already done to your King. So that those of you who are in Christ have been forgiven an enormous debt. So that the only way you are going to be a forgiving people is to remember that you were forgiven a much greater debt. The only way you're going to be forgiving is if you remember you were forgiven a much greater debt. So that now you hear Ephesians 4, the verse we read at the beginning. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And you want to ask Paul, how do you do that? And he says, as God in Christ forgave you. The only way you get rid of wrath, the only way you get rid of bitterness and anger and slander and clamor, 
The only way you could be tender-hearted with one another and forgive one another is to remember how God in Christ forgave you. Is to meditate deeply on the gospel, to remember your enormous debt that you would be moved to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiven people will be forgiving people. And Jesus is so adamant and strong about this that I want you to hear what he says at the end. Verse 34 and 35 again. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says this king at the end of this story sentences this man to jail until he can pay back everything. When can he pay back everything? Never. He's got 193,000 years worth of debt. And Jesus says, my father will do to every one of you that same thing. If you do not forgive your brother, and then he throws the last words so that you can't fake this, from your heart. Jesus is saying there are, hear this, no unforgiving people in the kingdom of God. None. There are no unforgiving people in the kingdom of God. Jesus warns, if you do not forgive from your heart, you are not of the kingdom of God. And, and why that is, is because unforgiveness in your heart reveals that you have not been forgiven, that you've never got what it means to be forgiven. This doesn't mean that we won't wrestle with forgiving. This doesn't mean we won't plead out for God's grace to be a forgiving people. But what it means is that if you have an ongoing, unforgiving, bitter, angry heart, if you cherish your hate, if you love your bitterness, if you nurse your unforgiveness, then that just reveals that you've never fully gotten the gospel, that you're still in your sin, and therefore you have no part of God's kingdom. If you have an ongoing spirit of unforgiveness that you cherish, it means that Christ's spirit never has dwelt in you. Because if you get the depth of your sin, it will move you to be forgiving even as you have been forgiven. That it will move you to hate your unforgiveness and plead with God for mercy and grace. And when you begin to see that he pours that into your heart, that you've been forgiven so much, and you are ready to move towards forgiveness. We've got lots of unanswered questions, right? So what do you do if someone doesn't repent or confess? What do you do if you approach someone and deal with your debtors, but they don't confess? Talk about that at soul care, right? How do you process that? What, what should your heart be? We've got much more on the conversation. What I want you to hear, though, is Jesus is saying, if Christ was crucified for your forgiveness, then forgiven people must be forgiving people. So what I want you to do is come back again, as we've done every week, to the foot of the cross. Come back again to Christ crucified. See him there again, hanging in your place for your enormous debt, for your unpayable sins, and see that he has forgiven you completely. And beg with him, even now, to allow His Holy Spirit to move you to be forgiving, even as in Christ God forgave you. Walk down the path of forgiveness even today. So ask your heart, 
Is there someone that I need to forgive? Ask your heart. Is there someone I am nursing bitterness towards that God is dealing with me even now? Is there someone that I want to hold a grudge against when God is calling me to forgive as I have been forgiven? And let every part of that bring you back to the gospel. So for some of you, that will mean that you resolve to deal with your debtors. And ask God's gospel to give you enough love for that person to see them come out of their sin. And to give you the boldness that you need. And begin to unpack what is keeping me. What scares me about this? What am I putting my trust in? What am I putting my confidence in rather than God? Or for some of us, it might mean that you're now at the point where you're going to bear the cost of forgiveness. And ask Jesus to give you grace, to bring you back to the cross and to say, Lord, help me to not require them to be repaid, to repay me, because you didn't require me to repay you. That even as I was forgiven an enormous debt, move me. And maybe some of us just need to spend time contemplating how much we were forgiven. Because forgiveness will require that we remember first we were forgiven an even greater debt so that we might be moved to forgive. Wherever you are, Jesus is going to say to us, forgiven people will be forgiving people. Let's pray.